0: The following resource is from lmpc.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian
1: Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Well, good morning, and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton, I'm one of the pastors here add my welcome to Brian's. We are glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, you may have noticed, as Annie was reading, we are picking back up our study in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Uh, and if you are new with us, you may not know this. In these uh, three years, we ha- we're doing something, we're in the second year of it, called the Renew Campaign. You may have noticed the scaffolding around the building when you were coming in. Uh, we are asking God to renew our place But we're asking God also to renew us as a people, uh, to revive us. And so during these three years together, we are spending kind of some time going back and forth between two books in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, and so we're doing the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, and we are doing the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And so it's been some time since we were in Deuteronomy, since last fall. And so just by way of reminder, if you have forgotten, if you've not been studying that every morning, preparing, as I would suppose you have not, because uh, I have not, <laughs> uh, here's a little bit of a reminder of what is going on in the book of Deuteronomy up to this point. Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. That story is told in the book of Exodus. They spent a year at Mount Sinai where they made a covenant with God, or rather he made a covenant with them to obey his laws. And of course, Israel immediately breaks that covenant, if you remember the story. They then spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness until all of that disobedient generation has died off because God says none of you will go in to the promised land, the land that I am giving you as a people. Finally, that whole generation dies off. Their children, the next generation, are on the edge of the promised land preparing to go in, preparing to go into the land that God promised to Abraham so long ago. And in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses has been recounting all of that history. And he is telling the next generation of Israelites, don't be like your parents. Don't be like your parents who broke the law, who broke the covenant. God has graciously redeemed us. He has brought us out of slavery. He has called us to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests for the good of the world, to go out and bless all peoples. And so let's respond to what he has done for us in loving obedience. And as a part of that invitation, Moses repeats the law, repeats the law that was given at Mount Sinai, beginning with that great summary of the law, the Ten Commandments. And so from now until Easter, we are going to slow way down in the book of Deuteronomy. I know, hold your applause. That's what you've been waiting for. We were going too fast through the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to slow down. And I think you'll see why we're doing that for a purpose, because we are going to spend time in the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend time studying this great part of God's holy word. And so we begin this morning, not with the first commandment, but actually with the context. The context of the commandments themselves, the prologue. And so you see our outline there in your bulletin. As God's covenant people go into the promised land, they are reminded of first the continuity of the law. The covenant was made with their parents, but it is also for them. The personal nature of the law in verses four and five, and then finally the redemptive foundation of the law. So that's where we're going. That's how we'll try to navigate the text this morning. Before we set out, let me pray. We'll ask God to bless our time in his word by sending his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, your word is no vain word. It is no empty word. It is our very life. We know that we don't live by bread alone, but that on every word that comes from your mouth. So we have gathered this morning as your sheep to be fed pray you would make us to lie down in green pastures this morning in your word, that we might feast here. pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Uh, some of you may remember, about 15 years ago, there were a lot of debates going on about where you could or could not have kind of a display of the Ten Commandments. Anybody remember this when this was going on in courthouses, public property, that kind of thing? And there was a group called the Ten Commandments Commission that was advocating for their admission to these various spaces. They wanted their presence at courthouses and that was kind of their mission uh, as they saw it. And one of the things they did was start this campaign. They hired a group called Kelton Research. It was a market research firm to quiz 1,000 Americans on the following three topics. Okay, three topics. How many of the Big Mac's seven ingredients can you name? How many of the Brady Bunch kids can you name? And then finally, how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Ingredients of the Big Mac, Brady Bunch kids, Ten Commandments. And the results were, as you can imagine, depressing quarter of those surveyed got all seven big mac ingredients a little over a third got all of the brady bunch kids which is surprising considering it went off the air in 1974 before many of these people were born what about the 10 commandments only 14 percent could name all 10 commandments now you might have a little bit of grace for that thinking i mean there's 10 you know it's a list we all forget things from time to time Only half knew that thou shalt not kill was one of the ten. You would think if someone came up to you with a microphone and asked you to make up the Ten Commandments, (laughs) your first one would be like, "Ah, I don't kill anybody. I don't know. That's all I got. And half of them knew that, and the other half did not. Um, Not great, right? Not great that we don't know. Uh, the Ten Commandments. I wonder if we went around the room, this would be terrifying, wouldn't it? If we went around the room and asked you to list the Ten Commandments. I had to re-memorize this week just to make sure that I was ready in case somebody grabs me after the service. Could you do it? It raises questions about the commandments' relevance, doesn't it? I mean, is this something we even need to waste brain space on? Even as Christians, right, there can be a certain amount of ambivalence about the law. I mean, Didn't Jesus kind of deal with all that? Do we really need to keep up with this? Is this something we need to know about? What is the relevance of the Ten Commandments? That's why it's important that we look at Moses' argument to the second generation as they're preparing to go into the land. Because one of the arguments he begins with is that even though you weren't there, this law is relevant for you. I think it's fascinating that Moses begins there. He starts in verse 1 by telling the people to hear the law. Hear it, learn it, and be careful to do it. But notice the reasoning that he starts with in verses two and three. Look back there with me. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So Moses says the Lord God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb's just another name for Mount Sinai, the story that we talked about earlier in Exodus 19 and 20. He's talking about those events. But remember who Moses is talking to, because what he's saying here is strange, because this is not the group that was there. Many of these people weren't even born yet. This is the kids of the people who were there. Verse 3 makes it even stranger. Moses says, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. Um, yes, he did. <laughs> right? I mean, if you go back and think about it, literally, yes, he did. That's literally what happened. Made the covenant with our fathers. Look at the rest of the verse and notice how many, how many versions there are of the us, we language. But with us, all of us who are here alive today, what is Moses doing? In a literal, technical sense, this this doesn't make any sense. Moses is trying to remind this generation of the nature of God's covenant, that promising relationship, promise-keeping relationship, with Israel. He is saying, that was not, the covenant I made with Abraham all the way back was not a one-off thing. Perhaps you remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and who? And your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. Moses is saying the nature of being in this community means that it's like you were there. You are just as much a partner in this as your parents were even though you weren't there. There is a continuity in the law's relevance from them to you. The commands are just as relevant for this generation as they were for the parents. Now, as we sit here this morning, you may be thinking, okay, got that? That part makes sense. They were a part of Israel, Abraham's descendants. They're one generation from the, from the group that was there. It makes sense that this would still apply to them but what about us? And we are pretty far removed from all of that. We were followers of Jesus on the other side of the resurrection. What does this law, these commandments have to do with us? One of the really interesting things to note in the New Testament is that it never revokes the 10 commandments. There are many other parts of the law that the New Testament does explicitly say, okay, now that Jesus has come, this, this part's no longer in play for you. So for instance, the book of Hebrews makes clear that Jesus has done away with all of the ceremonial parts of the law. All the parts about sacrifices in the temple have been fulfilled in him. All the dietary laws, all of that was pointing forward to Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross was better. Talked about that during Advent. It was better than all the blood of bulls and goats that the Old Testament law called for. He dealt with sin once and for all. And so we don't sacrifice animals anymore. We don't need to. Jesus has covered us by a sacrifice. So the ceremonial law has been done away with. And the books of Acts make clear that the gospel is going now to all nations. God's covenant community no longer exists as a single theocratic nation state called Israel. God is gathering people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that now our primary citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Christ the Lord. He says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all of the civil parts, all the civil legislation parts of the law, the parts about how Israel was supposed to wage war, how they were supposed to function as a nation state, all of that are no longer appropriate for us. So both the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law have have been done away with. Certainly there are still principles underneath them, right? There are principles underneath them that we can learn from that are important for us to know, but we are not bound to the letter of those laws anymore. But the one aspect of the law that the New Testament does not revoke is what is often called the moral law. As it is summarized in the Ten Commandments over and over again, these commandments are reaffirmed as a summary of what it means to follow God, to live in obedience to him. Just one example in Romans 13, 8 and 9, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so notice what Paul is doing there. He starts listing out some of the 10 commandments and then echoing Jesus, he says they are the way for God's people to love. To love one another. Kevin DeYoung phrases it well. He says, When we love, we fulfill the commandments. And when we obey the commandments, we are fulfilling the law of love. That's just one example of where the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament. Paul will do it again in 1 Timothy 1. Of course, the most famous and probably the most significant place would be the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus doesn't just affirm the commandments, but shows their depth. They go farther than anybody believed at the time. He says explicitly, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so as followers of Jesus, yes, we're gonna talk about this more this spring. Jesus transforms the commandments, but he does not do away with them. Okay, so if your eyes glazed over during all of that, the payoff of everything I just said is this these commandments are still relevant for us. These commandments matter for us as well, for they teach us how to love. They teach us how to love. There was continuity for the people Moses was talking to, but there is continuity for us as well. Just as Israel was to hear these commandments and to learn them and to do them, we are as well. But why we obey these commandments is going to be the all-important question. And it's where Moses turns his attention next to the personal nature of the law. Look back at verses four and five with me. "'The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain.'" Moses says the Lord spoke this law to Israel face-to-face. He doesn't mean that literally, right? He goes on to say that God's speaking to them out of the midst of the fire. His point is that God drew near, like we talk to one another face-to-face. God came near to his people to give them the law. And Moses is saying that this law is not some abstract moral philosophy or some code of impersonal universal principles, this is the law of the Lord, your God, he says to them in the next verse. I mean, think about it if you're Israel, right? In that moment, it would be a terrifying thing to have God show up in fire on top of a mountain and start speaking, thundering from the heavens. In fact, remind, Moses reminds the people of how terrified their parents were. What does he say in verse 5? You were afraid because of the fire. Yeah, I would have been too. They did not go up. Moses says, I had to stand between you and him and mediate. And if God simply said out of the fire, I am the Lord, period, how much more terrifying would that be? But God does not stop there. His self-revelation continues. He says, I am the Lord, your God as he shows up in all of his holy presence, he reminds them, I am your God. As the rest of the Bible will unpack, they are his treasured possession. And we are too. This law is the law of the God who is for us. How do we know that? How do we know that he is for us? We know that because of what he has done for us. That is where Moses finishes before he launches into the commandments proper. Look back at verse 6 with me as he unpacks the redemptive foundation of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before Moses begins giving them the law, he reminds them of what God has done for them. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out. That order is of the utmost significance. Deliverance, then law, then the commandments. This is a point you're going to hear us, I think, reiterate over and over again this spring. God does not give Israel the Ten Commandments to obey so that he will then deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Right? It does not say, I am the Lord your God who will bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, if you have no other gods before me. So on and so forth. What does it say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out a finished past tense work. That is the context in which God gives his law. He is not inviting them to obey for acceptance. They already have that. He is inviting them to obey because they have been accepted. And this is significant for us because that is our context as well. God is not inviting us to obey these commands so that he will save us. This is a very common misconception about Christianity and what it teaches. Check the boxes, do the good stuff, go to the good place when you die. God is not inviting us to obey that we might be saved. He is inviting us to obey because for those who place their faith in Jesus, He already has saved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Say that again. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. It is the reason for obedience. Jesus does not say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you in John 14. You remember what happens that night before as he's being about to be betrayed, meeting with his disciples, getting ready to go to the cross. What does he do? He takes the form of a servant. He washes his disciples' feet. And then he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our doing as we follow Jesus is always a response to his gracious initiation to what he has done first. We love him because he first loved us. And because Jesus perfectly kept every part of this law, because he died on the cross to pay for the penalty for all the ways we have not kept it and do not keep it, and because he rose again from the dead, God can say to us, I am the Lord, your God. Who has brought you out of the Egypt of your sin? Out of your slavery to evil? God has set us free. And now he wants us to stay free. How do we do that? We obey the law. We obey his commandments. But why we obey really matters. We are not obeying to get a status from God that we don't already have. We are obeying because in Christ that status is already ours. And united to Him with the Holy Spirit living in us, we are now free to live the life He made us to live. Life as He designed it to be lived, according to His holy law. That is why we obey. We already have the status in Jesus. Um, I I don't know how many of you are huge uh, Olympics fans. I don't keep up much with the Olympics, summer or winter, but even I am aware of a snowboarder whose name is Sean White. Anybody heard of Sean White? Most glorious mane of red hair in human history. That much I know. Back in 2010, uh, at the Vancouver Winter Olympics, Sean White dominated one of his events, the Half Pipe. Uh, And in fact, he dominated it so much that he had the gold medal locked up before his final run. It was mathematically impossible that he could lose it. And so as he lined up to do his final run, the commentators are having this interesting conversation because they're like, what's he going to do? Right? Technically, he doesn't have to do anything. Even if he just cruised down the slope without doing any tricks he already has the gold locked up. But instead, in a move that blew everyone's mind, Sean White decided to try and land one more trick. And not just any trick, he tried to land, and this is why I love snowboarding a double McTwist 1260. <laughs> Do you love that name? Can you believe that's an Olympic sport? <laughs> so good. A double McTwist 1260. Listen to what this trick is. It combines three and a half twists and two flips all in one move. And that is a recipe for death for most of us. You can just take me straight to the funeral home. No one has ever landed this trick in the Olympics up till this point. And Sean White, with the gold medal already locked up on a run he didn't even need, absolutely nailed it nailed it, hit it clean. I mean, it is still one of the best tricks to ever be landed in Olympic snowboarding. And a lot of the discussion after the fact was just like, why did he do it? I mean, it was awesome, but why did he do it? He didn't need to, didn't have to, but Sean White did not see it that way. Having the gold medal locked up for him meant he had to. He had to go for it. It was out there. He could do it. Some of you see where I'm going with this. In Christ, we have a status freely given to us. Difference between us and Sean White is that we have not done anything to deserve it. It's all him. He did everything and has graciously given it to us. And many people think that such a gift would make us loose with obedience. Make us licentious. We wouldn't do it. If we're already forgiven, we can get away with anything. We can cruise down the slope without performing. But when the reality of this status actually gets into the core of who you are, you can't not go for it. It changes how you respond to god's law it spurs you on towards holy living we perform quote unquote not because we might lose our status if we don't because we are god's children now it's just what we do we have to go for it we have been set free why would we go back why would we go back into slavery so this morning, for those of you who are following Jesus, the invitation as we study the Ten Commandments this spring. Don't go back. We have to go for it. Our God has set us free. These commandments are the good life. Life as it was meant to be lived. This is how we love him and our neighbor. For Those of you who are not yet following Jesus, trying to evaluate whether this is something you might, that might be true, that you might want to do, Aren't you tired of trying to get this status on your own? What if you could have it for free? What if God wants to rescue you? What if obedience is a response to what he has done, not something you have to do to move him at all? That is what the cross of Jesus Christ tells us. And I would invite you to believe it this morning. Let me pray for us as we prepare to sing. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision in Jesus Christ, that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift, that because of his perfect obedience to this law of love, you have saved us. And so I pray that you would give us everything we need. Would you equip us for every good work, that which you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in, because of Jesus. Pray for those who have not yet believed, Lord, if, this, if any of this is true, would you open their eyes and their hearts to see it, to receive the gift of your salvation and to walk into freedom. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.